0: If an author had written like a great genius on geometry, though his practical and speculative morals were vicious in the extreme, it might appear that in voting the statue, they honored only the geometrician, but Rousseau is a moralist or he is nothing. Hello, my name is Ryan Hamill and I'm one of the hosts of New Humanists, the podcast of the Ancient Language Institute. I'm here with Jonathan Roberts, my co-host and co-founder of the Ancient Language Institute. We are on a quest to discover what renewed humanism looks like for the modern world. Jonathan, welcome back. Good to be with you. We're taking a little break from our series on Livy, No Republic Was Ever Greater, back to what you might call our regularly scheduled programming, which is just kind of a, a leisurely amble through all sorts of books and essays and letters and just ways to think about what a renewed humanism looks like for the modern world. And a large part of that leisurely amble has been working through the anthology, The Great Tradition, edited by Richard M. Gamble, which I usually pitch whenever we do a reading from it, but I want to spend a little more time reintroducing it today just because I'm part of a lot of Facebook groups and stuff where people gather digitally to talk about the humanities, the liberal arts, classical education. And a recurring question for parents and teachers that I see come up over and over again is, I just learned about the classical education movement. What should I read first? And people are in general pretty quick to recommend, oh, this you know, groundbreaking book about classical ed. Uh, and people have their little debates about which one is the best intro to classical education. But whenever I see those posts and have a moment to respond, I always recommend this book, The Great Tradition, for a few reasons. One is because it's primary sources, and it's just 99 times out of 100, better to go back to primary sources than to something newfangled. Granted, some of those newfangled things will become primary sources, uh and the Ultimate distinction between a primary and secondary source is a little specious. But there's, you run a very, very, very small risk of reading something more important than Edmund Burke if you read something published after the year 2000. You might. I'm sure something has been written. I'm not sure. There's a possibility that something has been written in the past 20 years that will end up being more important than Edmund Burke. I'm open to that. But the fact that what you have in mind is going to be that thing is not likely. So that's that's one reason. But another reason is I think a lot of people kind of piously know that they should read primary sources, but they don't know where to start. And this book is just such a fantastic selection and it's really tightly focused. So for anybody wondering and not just about classical education, someone who wants to kind of get back into the humanities or Knows that they need to brush up on the liberal arts. This really is the book for you. I was not paid to say this, but it's just so good because it it is both tightly focused but also ranging and across history, quite ranging from the pre-Socratics all the way through twentieth century. So I just really highly recommend it. And as people might remember, you and I have been reading it from back to front, and so we started with Vogelin in the late twentieth century and we'll get to the pre-Socratic Greeks eventually. We're making good progress. And I was just thinking about why we're doing that, and we've kind of talked about it, but there's a tendency in the way curricula are set up to start with the old stuff and then work chronologically till you get to the kind of apotheosis of reason in the most up-to-date book or essay, which has a certain sense to it. But if you do it backwards, then you see that what... Some people call the great conversation, really is a conversation. It's really building on what was said previously. And then you get to see Plato and Aristotle and Anaximander and all these people as really the apotheosis. That's really where it got started. And by saving them for the end, they're kind of the climax, really, as they kind of ought to be.
1: You can think of high school or college program where you begin with the greeks and end with nietzsche and by the time you know these students have developed i mean their brains just have developed physically and their skills and discipline as students has also developed they're not at, the, at their high, at their peak you know discounting senior writers but at their peak what are they reading they're reading the moderns and just wouldn't it be nice if they were reading Plato and Aristotle at that stage,
0: it's funny that you say end with Nietzsche. I was in college. I did a great books seminar that was called "From the Ten Commandments to the Death of God." Which is <laughs> cute, um, but yeah, no, it, that's exactly right. So, anyways, we've made our way through the twentieth century, and we made our way through the nineteenth century and a bunch of Oxonians, and now we're headed into the 18th century in great tradition. Like I said, this is Edmund Burke, who, I mean, maybe needs no introduction, maybe he does. English member of parliament, very prominent and well-read still today, despite being over 200 years old. In large part, he's seen as the kind of philosophical founder of modern conservatism. And beyond just the electoral politics of kind of liberal conservative, but just as the kind of conservative cast of mind, which is interesting. And his his the the book most people know him for is Reflections on the Revolution in France, which is kind of his horrified indictment of the French Revolution, even in its early days. I mean, he wrote that in 1790 when things were really just getting started. I mean, it's a very incredible piece of writing, but it also turned out to be very prescient. He kind of foresaw the way the revolution would go and even converted some of his opponents. There was a large faction in England at the time that was very excited about the French Revolution. And people wrote diatribes against Burke, saying, how could you, how could you reign on this French parade?
1: The French are finally getting something right, they might say.
0: <laughs> right. And when the revolutionaries ended up killing the king, and then killing each other. There were a number of them that kind of looked back and said, Mea culpa, Burke, you were right. And so that, that's in part a uh, reason for his prominence. I just say it's funny to think of him as the conservative icon just because he's a Whig. And I'm not an expert on kind of 18th century, 19th century English electoral politics, but you could kind of see the Whigs as the liberal party of England at the time against the Tories, who were more of an aristocratic party. And the Whigs were really dominant for a long time in English politics. And Burke's opposition to the French Revolution ended up causing a serious rift within the Whigs since he was more associated with what he called the old Whigs, which is a kind of more conservative version of the liberals. So when you approach Burke, you're not, despite kind of his place in the conservative firmament in the United States, he's not a reactionary. He's not a proponent of the Ancien Régime that the French Revolution overturned. His ideal picture was not for France to return to an absolutist monarchy or to kind of reestablish the aristocracy and the church in the way it had been. There are, you know, anti-French Revolution reactionary thinkers that you can and should read, I and mean, it's interesting stuff. But that's not Burke. Burke's kind of a a very moderate kind of liberal figure, but really knew that the French Revolution was poison. And so, what we're reading is not reflections on the Revolution in France. It's something written later um, as part of the kind of pamphlet war that erupted in England because of the French Revolution which really got started in 1789 by Richard Price. He delivered a sermon called A Discourse on, on the Love of Our Country, in which he, he w- the occasion of the sermon was to celebrate England's 17th century Glorious Revolution, kind of the establishment of the monarchy as it was then established contemporaneously. And Price connected the English Glorious Revolution to the French Revolution, and kind of identified the language of abstract rights with England's own Glorious Revolution. And Burke saw this both as foolhardy, kind of a foolhardy assessment of how destructive the French Revolution would become, but also kind of sacrilegious against England's monarchy, which he said was not rooted in this conception of abstract rights. He wrote the Reflections on the Revolution in France, There were a bunch of responses to that. Mary Wollstonecraft was one. Thomas Paine was another, both opponents of Burke's. But a lot of French conservatives and reactionaries appreciated Burke's reflections. François-Louis Thibault de Menonville wrote him a letter asking for more. And that's where we get Burke's 1791, still, relatively speaking, early on in the French Revolution a letter to a member of the National Assembly. That's the revolutionary government in France. And so you still have non-revolutionary people opposed to the revolution in the National Assembly, which is going to generate the murderousness in part of the French Revolution later on, but kind of already underway. And that letter is very long. We have, in the Great Tradition, a short excerpt from it. As you heard in the open, this is in large part, at least the selection we're reading, an attack on Rousseau, who's kind of the philosophical anchor of the revolution. And so, yeah, starting from the beginning, Burke gets into education. And that's why we find this letter in great tradition. What does it mean to be an educated human being? That's kind of the point of this anthology. And that is what Burke is criticizing here. And so he says that You know, every regime has to raise its young. And if it's a good regime, at least a regime that can perpetuate itself, it's going to have to raise young people to love and support the regime. And so if you have an evil regime, it's going to raise its children in an evil fashion. And so it should be no surprise that in reflections on a revolution, you're going to find reflections on education, because that revolution in the regime means a revolution in education. And the revolution that Burke sees is not just a question of books or curriculum. It's It goes down to the bedrock of society, human society and the human person, down to virtues and vices. He says that the revolutionary education, instead of forming young minds to that docility, to that modesty, which are the grace and charm of youth, to an admiration of famous examples, and to an adverseness to anything which approaches to pride, petulance, and self-conceit, they, the revolutionaries, artificially foment these evil dispositions and even form them into springs of action. So there's been a total revaluation of values, according to Burke, in the French Revolution, including in their education. And so instead of forming young people in... The virtues that restrain vice, they just look at that vice that is kind of there and just put gas on the fire.
1: This is a really interesting quote because we see some echoes of things we've discussed before. For instance, this mention of the significance of the admiration of famous examples makes us think of that passage in Pro Arque Poeta. But another thing that's really interesting about this, this quote as a part of the whole Rousseauan educational experiment was that it's, it was supposed to be natural. It was supposed to move people away from holding themselves to artificial standards and their characters being formed artificially. And, you know, it was supposed to move you away from that because you know, civilization and artifice in different ways is supposed to be what corrupts human nature,
0: according to Rousseau.
1: Right. And here Burke is saying that the whole Rousseau experiment is artificially making people worse. So not only is as he criticizes, he's criticizing both the ends and the means that Rousseau is using and that Rousseau is aiming for, and essentially saying that both are failures. the The means are bad. And in fact, they're not what they claim to be. They're artificial. They're not natural. And they do not lead to virtue, but to
0: vice. Right. And so someone, a kind of Rousseauian responding to Burke might say, well, you just don't like the fruit of the revolution because you're a reactionary. He said, look, on your own criteria, you're not doing what you think you're doing. It's artificial. You've created this whole system. And sought out certain vices, and then tried to leverage those vices for your own purposes. This isn't a return to nature, even though I don't even agree with the return to nature. But you're not even doing that. Yeah. And if 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 anyone
1: is interested in a kind of resource, one of Rousseau's extended treatments on this, his work in education and Mill, uh, I'm not sure how you would pronounce it, emile Emile, I don't know. emile Yep. it is is worth reading for for that. Uh, purpose and that's that's a good um thought experiment that you can have as you're reading it it's like how natural is this would this actually happen i mean i am remembering his discussion of how emil is supposed to learn how to read and it's all kind of based on uh, emil's natural impulses and natural curiosity and it just it seems really really far-fetched how he he uh he works those scenarios, but that would be worth reading for further background on the, the these sorts of conversations.
0: And it can be kind of laughed at, but it really shouldn't be laughed off because this desire to return to nature, particularly when thinking about education, is potent and it's living and active in educational thought today. And people can probably think of their... Favorite bad example of this. Uh, My favorite bad example of this can be traced to no less venerable volume than The Great Tradition, edited by Richard M. Gamble. In particular, The Lost Tools of Learning by Dorothy Sayers, which enjoys a place of great esteem in kind of the modern classical education movement. And I just think it's very pernicious. What Burke is criticizing here in the French Revolutionaries is precisely what Sayers recommends. I think she's a revolutionary in a lot of ways and very Rousseauian. Her whole appropriation of the medieval trivium, she maps onto child development as it kind of supposedly naturally grows, and you just give kids what. Their natural impulses desire, which is maybe defensible if it's if it if it were to be uh, based on actual child psychology, but what's not at all defensible is this idea of seeking out vice and magnifying it as a spring to action, as Burke says or putting gas on the fire of vice in order to motivate students which is what Sayers wants you to do in the i think in general she wants you to do that but she makes it explicit in her description of the logic stage with the which she also calls the pert stage in answering an objection that you should teach argumentative kids to argue more she says well, it might be objected that to encourage young, per- young persons at the pert age to browbeat correct and argue with their elders will render, will render them perfectly intolerable. So my answer is that children of that age are intolerable anyhow, and that their natural, natural argumentativeness may just as well be canalized to good purpose as allowed to run away into the sands. I mean, that is precisely what Burke is criticizing, that vice becomes a spring of action. And that's what Sayers wants to do. And so it's not just, you know, speaking to my classical education people, it's not just the evil progressives out there that are guilty of Rousseauian fantasy. It's Sayers herself.
1: So a potential objection to this read on, on Se- of Sayers, I wonder what, what you would say to this, you know, somebody is reading Sayers. and says, but Ryan, isn't, it seems like all that she's saying is that look, these kids are going to be argumentative. They're already intolerable, so let's use that. They have this argumentative energy, and might as well channel that and discipline it and teach them how to actually argue, uh, as opposed to just you know say words in an angry fashion. What would be your your uh, take on that? Reading of, of Sayers.
0: My take is that Sayers has appropriated medieval categories without actually thinking them through. And so that's true of this issue of the trivium, where she basically evacuates disciplines, grammar, logic, rhetoric, evacuates them of all their content and turns them into techniques. And she does that similarly with virtue and vice. She doesn't really. Have a concept of virtue and vice. There's a big difference between canalizing vicious instincts into a spring of action and using it to motivate people versus disciplining vice and teaching students continence so that they can then develop the virtue of temperance. That is not in the picture for her. All this language appropriated from medieval and classical thinking without any of the real content behind it. And that vision of, that classical and medieval vision of, and thinking behind virtue and vice is present here in Burke. And it's just woefully absent in Sayers.
1: It's interesting that Sayers comes up in, the, in this episode that deals with Rousseau in part because Rousseau came up briefly, I think, when we were discussing Sayers. And if there are any regular listeners, they will see
0: why. For the same reason that we would bring up Maria Montessori, people who have a grandiose vision of how to raise children and want to affect a revolution in child rearing and education and can't be bothered to raise their own children. And so this is this is kind of the classic pitfall, maybe it's a pitfall, maybe it's not, of those who criticize Rousseau. Rousseau is a very subtle thinker, a very brilliant writer, extremely learned, very impressive, very impressive philosopher. And it's really easy to kind of let yourself off the theoretical hook and not deal with his arguments by resorting to ad hominem. And so there's ad hominem aplenty in (laughs) this selection. It's a polemical work. Burke wants to motivate French conservatives to basically stage a counter-revolution. And so it's a polemical work. And so he knows he's using ad hominem against Rousseau, who abandoned his children, but he defends it. He defends the ad hominem explicitly. And that's what I read at the beginning. Classic question of, can you separate the artist from his art? Oh, this you know movie that where Harvey Weinstein produced, like I can't watch it anymore. Cause he's evil. I mean, that that's a perfectly acceptable qualm to have and thing to argue about. Can we, you know, can we read the poems of Ezra Pound even though he's a fascist or something? And Burke says, look, if it's a geometer and he lived an evil life, don't talk about his evil life. Talk about the geometry. There's just no relation between these things. But, Rousseau is different. Rousseau is a moralist or he is nothing. And you simply cannot, this is my gloss on birth, you simply cannot blind yourself to the fruit from the tree. This is Jesus' proverb, judge a tree by its fruits. And so if you look at the moral fruit of Rousseau's life, having five children out of wedlock, and then just abandoning him to a founding hospital, where I mean, it would honestly surprise me if they survived. It when you see evil fruit like that, you can't just disregard it. In the case of a moralist, and that's what Rousseau is. <laughs>
1: Burke has this quote. Um, he says, "Your assembly, knowing how much more powerful example is found than precept, has chosen this man by his own account, without a single virtue." For a model. And it's almost as if Burke is, is saying, Do you think this is an ad hominem? How about you read his own writings on himself? <laughs> yeah. But it seems like the Rousseauan project wants to kind of get rid of the weight that any of these moral critiques would have. Because look, I'm just acting according to nature.
0: And that's why at the end, and we'll get to this at the end of this selection, what seems to be the implicit conclusion of Burke is that only violence, only force can stop the revolution and overturn it. You can't argue, you can't actually argue for a counter revolution, not to the revolutionaries, to people on the fence. Sure, there's a role for discourse to play, but you have to use power, naked power. In order to stop the revolutionaries, because they have totally abandoned all the standards that you could appeal to. That's the whole point of their revolution. He says their great problem, and here he means problem like uh, task, their great problem is to find a substitute for all the principles which hitherto have been employed to regulate the human will and action. So the revolutionaries have totally changed their value system. And so, having done that, you can't actually, you cannot actually appeal to them on the basis of normal human morality and virtue. It's impossible. The revolution is against precisely that moral system.
1: Yeah, and perhaps a way to kind of pin down what exactly is this principle that Rousseau has you know, bewitched people with. This is how uh, Burke puts it. It is that new invented virtue, which your masters canonize, that led their moral hero constantly to exhaust the stores of his powerful rhetoric and the expression of universal benevolence, whilst his heart was incapable of harboring one spark of common parental affection. Uh, so these, these constant attacks on, on Rousseau are just, uh, you know, peppered throughout here. But one of the uh, interesting things here is that he describes his virtue as invented. <laughs> again, kind of poking at, I think, I think this is just a very clever rhetorical move that Burke deploys again. Because he, he's again saying, this is not, not coming from nature. This is made up. This is not a real virtue. This is not a virtue that's in accordance to nature. You, this, is an, this is invented. This is brand new, out of the factory.
0: (laughs) And like, let's just think for a second, what name would you give to the vice that is always putting on airs, that is very artificial, that is always kind of looking at itself in the mirror to see like how its makeup looks, the thing that it's applied to itself, the artificial thing, that's vanity. And that's precisely the vice with which Burke tags Rousseau and the revolutionaries. And he builds this dichotomy between humility and vanity. And so Rousseau and the French revolutionaries think they're returning to nature, they're being natural, unadorned. He says, no, you're vain. And your vanity, your revolution of vanity is against what? Against humility, which he calls the true basis of the Christian system, humility, it is the low but deep and firm foundation of all real virtue. And so there's a bit of wordplay here, particularly in light of his kind of polemical task of taking down Rousseau. I mean, humility comes from the word for dirt. And he says it's low and deep and firm foundation, connecting it conceptually there not just etymologically but conceptually to the dirt from which everything arises in nature this is the true virtue of nature humility and Christianity is the religious system that truly honors nature contrasted to the French revolutionary system which is vain and artificial uh, because it's in opposition to that that's that's kind of the implicit argument sometimes explicit, sometimes implicit argument that he's setting up here.
1: Yeah, and this is, what, this is what he does with the image of the bear, right? He, after making this point, you kind of realize, but wait, isn't like parental love such a natural thing? And so he says, the bear loves, licks, and forms her young, but bears are not philosophers. Vanity, however, finds his account in reversing the train of her natural Feeling. Thousands admire the sentimental writer. The affectionate father is hardly known in his parish. So there's, I
0: I think it's a classical tradition that bear cubs are born unformed, and that's why their mothers lick them so much, is to lick them into shape. And so he's saying, okay, let's look at nature. Let's look at a bear. Which cubs does a mother bear lick? All the cubs? Any cub? No, it licks its own cubs nature loves its own and is there a possibility in theory of tra- of kind of working up the ladder from the love of one's own to the love of of all of a more a more universal love sure in theory you can do that but what rousseau has done in his life and in his philosophy is abandon the love of one's own for the love of all universally benevolence to the whole species and want of feeling for every individual I love humanity, but I hate my neighbor. I mean this is this is the kind of problem par excellence in in Rousseau, according to Burke. And so he says, look, you want to look at nature. A bear a bear loves its own. You philosophers are worse even than nature. I mean, humans should go up that ladder from love of one's own to a more maybe not totally universal, but a more universal love. And I I think you see you see this Reach its highest expression in the gospels, you love your enemy, but you don't get there by parachute. you get there by a hard climb. You start with the love of one's own like a bear, and then the hard climb, the training of the virtues, you get to a place where you can love your enemies. Hopefully, you can be better than a bear. Uh, hopefully you can be as good as a pagan for Christ, right? Oh, you, you love those who love you. everyone does that. Um, it's just assumed, but the philosophers are even worse. They don't even love their own. It's really perverse
1: to to appropriate a quote from from the gospel. How can you say that you love mankind when you hate your children, when you hate your neighbor? Reading this um, selection from Burke really makes me wonder what makes Rousseau's um, writing so appealing. How was he so persuasive? What? Human itch does he does he manage to scratch? And one thing that Burke acknowledges a few times is just how powerful he is rhetorically. He's a master rhetorician, and he's able to um, express himself very, very elegantly, very powerfully. So that's one thing that he has going for him, and this. I imagine that there's also this, this appeal to like, yeah, shouldn't you love mankind? And and then you you kind of sells, you know, sells you that premise. And then it leads in the particular consequences of it might be more disastrous than you might want them to be like, well, for the sake of mankind massacre, (laughs) we gotta, we, we gotta, you know, get rid of all these folks who are, enemies of mankind in order that we might go back to nature and really make some some progress
0: yes when i think that's right and what it leads into is what's the appeal of rousseau well what's the appeal of revolution that's the real question i mean rousseau's a great thinker and a great writer but i think the excitement you get from reading him is similar to the excitement you get from revolutionary movement and so you have to look at the great revolutionary movements and try and understand why they're appealing, starting with the French revolution. And one aspect of the French revolution that does not get much airtime, but gets air to plenty of airtime in Burke in this selection, is sex. The French revolution is a horny revolution. <laughs> is that the name of this episode? <laughs> the horny revolution. Sorry, this is kind of, we intentionally don't have profanity on this podcast, but I mean, we we just can't talk about this election without talking about what Burke talks about, and he says that the French Revolution has staged a concerted attack on the home first between parents and children. Why? Because parenthood is not a choice of free election. Never so on the side of the children. Not always on the part of the parents. No kid chose their parents. And sometimes when you have kids, you didn't choose to do that uh, directly. I mean, you chose something else. And then the next thing they attack after the uh, relations between parents and children is relations between students and teachers. The moralists of the dark times, and Rousseau's being, or sorry, Burke is being sarcastic. The moralists of the dark times saw them saw teachers as in loco parentis, which is a phrase, a Latin phrase we still use to talk about the legal responsibility of schools, that they're acting in the place of parents. But if you attack the role of parents, uh, you end up attacking that conception of teachers. So in this age of light, again, sarcastic, Burke says, they teach the people that preceptors, teachers, ought to be in the place of gallants. I'm like, what What does that even mean? It becomes very clear that teachers should feel no compunction about grooming kids into sexual love. And he says here's here's how here's what happens. The French Revolution. When the fence from the gallantry of preceptors is broken down and your families are no longer protected by decent pride and salutary domestic prejudice, there is but one step to a frightful corruption. The rulers in the National Assembly are in good hopes that the females of the first families in France May become an easy prey to dancing masters, fiddlers, pattern drawers, friseurs, and valets de chambre, and other active citizens of that description, who, having the entry into your houses and being half domesticated by their situation, may be blended with you by regular and irregular relations. By a law, they have made these people their equals. And so the egalitarian character of the French Revolution is meant to cause a great sexual leveling in french society so that servants can get into the houses of the aristocratic families and kind of drop a nuclear bomb on on the family situation by seducing the women
1: and uh, one thing that you see in in this selection that you read is you see a very similar a very similar thing to what we already discussed which is you have this abstraction you know the love of humanity and pitted against a, a concrete reality you know your your neighbors your children and then once again for instance with with the children and the parents you have an abstraction you have choice election and not not that the, you know any of those things are bad in themselves but it seems like that rousseau is pitting putting these abstractions against concrete realities Maybe Rousseau isn't doing it directly, but this is just the natural result of these oppositions, and they the concrete, concrete realities, like parenting, natural family structures, end up end up losing, and the and the ideals end up end up winning.
0: And so then, in answer to your earlier question, Jonathan. What's the appeal of Rousseau? Well, what's the appeal of a revolution? The answer that Burke's laying out is desire. And I think that answer captures the kind of two, at least two-fold character of revolutions. Because desire, I mean, that's kind of abstract. Make it specific. Sexual desire. So a total loosening of um, sexual morality. And secondly, economic desire, that's kind of a weird way to say it, desire for money. And so revolutions are also a question of class. In large part, the French Revolution was led by the bourgeois class, this kind of rising capitalist or proto-capitalist class that wanted to take political power to, to kind of correspond to the, them being at the commanding heights of economic growth over from the aristocracy. And so people hear bourgeois and they think kind of staid and conservative. But in the eighteenth century, the bourgeoisie is highly egalitarian and democratic because these are people with no family background to speak of, who think they should be running France. Because who runs France? It's people who can, you know, trace their genealogy back to a thousand years back, versus, oh I'm a, you know, I'm a shoemaker. I think I should run France. That's inconceivable until this moment. And so you see a similar thing with the Bolshevik revolution, total loosening of sexual morality and a class war.
1: So um, it almost sounds like it really isn't about these grand abstract ideals. Uh, They kind of seem to work as um, cover, as like cosmetics for the real human impulses that will, will reign the day
0: heart is desperately wicked. Who can know it? One of the important ways to rule your desperately wicked heart and gain the ascendance over it is through taste. This is part of the kind of destruction of domestic family prejudice, the things that kind of keep your family intact, that Burke identifies because of these kind of teachers of corruption. And so I I think of the abolition of man. We already mentioned the Ordo Amoris. Readers of the abolition of man will certainly recognize that phrase, the order of loves. But another another kind of important concept from the abolition of man is that it is not sufficient to say that beauty is in the eye of the beholder. And this is something that I think most people when pressed will agree with, that, yeah, if you think this painting is beautiful... And I don't, well, that's fine. but using the eye of the beholder. There's no argument that needs to be had. Um, and that's something Lewis is going to dispute. That's how he opens the abolition of man, is that you can, everyone can just have their own private feelings about, about these kinds of things, and it doesn't matter. Burke, like Lewis, disagrees, says it does matter. It matters quite a bit. Why? He says, well, taste and elegance, they are indeed among the smaller and secondary morals but they are of no mean importance in the regulation of life. A moral taste is not of force to turn vice into virtue. So you can't, you can't write a novel that recommends virtue and someone loves the novel and then that alone will turn them virtuous. This is an important insight, I think. I remember having an argument about Lord of the Rings and the value of fiction and, oh, you know, Jeff Bezos is a big... Tolkien fan, and yet he's created a kind of e-commerce version of Mordor. Clearly, literature doesn't help anyone's character. So that's a good good point. And Burke would say, yeah, literature cannot turn you moral. But he says, a moral taste, while it's not a force to turn vice into virtue, it recommends virtue with something like the blandishments of pleasure, and it infinitely abates the evils of vice forming people's moral tastes is going to make virtue pleasurable and you'll you're more likely to choose it there's other things that have to go along with it but if you can make vice look nasty then you've done something really positive it's not a guarantee but it's helpful
1: and i think i think the the following sentence Gets to uh, something that you've mentioned about the the need to understand revolutions. Part of it is a dissatisfaction with the status quo, and so this is what Burke says. Your masters, who for uh, your masters who are his scholars, conceive that all refinement has an aristocratic character, and so this is they they. They see notions such as taste. It's this good taste. It's this bad taste. And, and they see aristocracy in this. It's like, oh, this is what, this is what the highfalutin people talk about, taste. And they look down on us when they, you know, <laughs> this is kind of what I, what I kind of imagine why some of this would be compelling. It's like they look down on us because they think they have good taste, but they don't really see that we're all like, Truly equal. And so, in the, in the name of equality, they've tried to abolish good taste.
0: Yep. Because the French Revolution is an anti aristocratic revolution and it's aristocracy that cultivates taste above all. And what's remarkable is that you could call, at least at this time, France the nation of the greatest taste in all of Europe. I mean, just think about what. The Bourbon monarchy produced from architecture of Versailles, music of Couperin, literature of Corneille, Racine, Moliere. I mean, you have just this unimaginably rich outpouring of refined, beautiful, sophisticated culture. And it's at, they're kind of at the top of their game. And then the pendulum shifts back so hard, and it shifts back so hard in part because it's so far over here on refinement, it shifts back all the way the other way uh, into a war on refinement. This is, I said, I said earlier that Burke kind of issues this implied call to arms to counter revolution. He says, I nearly despair of any attempt upon the minds of their followers through reason, honor, or conscience. Why? Because it's a war. The French Revolution is a war against reason, honor, and conscience. He says to his interlocutor in France, the great object of your tyrants is to destroy the gentlemen of France. I thought that was a really, really interesting line. They're trying to destroy the gentlemen, to kill the people who are gentlemen in part but more to make gentlemanliness impossible, unimaginable. And so it's funny to think about this kind of revolution against traditional sexual morality, a revolution against the aristocracy, against the remnants of feudalism, a revolution against the Christian system, as Burke says. Um, it made me think of French philosopher, actually, Remy Brague, in his 2018 Erasmus lecture called God as a Gentleman. He actually talked about some of this and he argues that Christianity was not a democratic movement, but it had democratic characteristics. Uh, But what it did is it universalized aristocracy, it took the kind of gentlemanly qualities of aristocracy and opened them up to everybody. Um, Which is a similar sentiment, I think, to the previous episode we did on Athanasius. When Athanasius kind of laughs at the Greeks and says, your philosophers never got more than a few followers. The Christians have people despising death in every hamlet, in every village. Uh, There's this kind of aristocratic mode that has been universalized and opened up to everybody. That's what the French Revolution has sought to eliminate in the name of democracy, in the name of egalitarianism.
1: It's interesting that these two impulses might be confused. It's like, no, isn't it, isn't this the same sort of spirit? It seems like Remy Bragg's claim is that Christianity seeks to elevate folks whereas The impulse here is to flatten, is to say there no there is no such thing as a standard that you should go higher up because it's artificial. This is all made up. It's all made up, and it's easy to imagine how there there could be elements of of truth to some of those critiques. It's like yeah, some of some of the trappings you know might be made up, might be unnecessary, but just the the reality of good taste, for instance. It might have all sorts of historical and cultural cultural inflections, but why don't you just get rid of it to uh, make you suspicious?
0: Indeed. We can't close off this episode without making a pitch for the classics. And that's what Burke does. He says, "Why? why is Rousseau more popular over across the channel and on the continent? Well, in part because of education, because English education we continue to read the authors of sound antiquity. We continue to read the Greeks and the Romans. These occupy our minds. They give us another taste in turn and will not suffer us to be more than transiently amused with paradoxical morality. So on the, on the one hand, we have Christian humility, which is a low but firm foundation. Uh, and we also have the writers of sound antiquity who. Whose wisdom we've imbibed. And so when someone like Rousseau comes along and pitches a return to nature, we can we might be amused for a second, but ah, not for long.
1: When he's discussing this in the, the quote that you just read, it also indicates that they are so the they are wanting to get rid of a certain taste system, but Rousseau knows what's appealing to know to his audience and he is appealing to their taste is basically what burke is saying and that's where he when he he when he's discussing like well why is why has he prevailed so much with with your folks and not so much with our folks and it's like well we've basically we we have good taste but taste has been formed in this particular way and so he's not he's not winning over here whereas He's winning over there, and and it's it's related to this taste question.
0: Yeah, that's that's very insightful. That you know, by imbibing the writers of sound antiquity, we've made virtue pleasurable, and so when someone, when a preacher of viciousness like Rousseau comes along, it can't really get a foothold because people kind of look at it and just sneer and laugh.
1: Yeah, and one really good line here. From Burke, following up from from where you just read, he says, And it's not that I consider this writer as wholly destitute of just notions. Amongst his irregularities, it must be reckoned that he is sometimes moral, and moral in a very sublime strain. But the general spirit and tendency of his works is mischievous, and the more mischievous for this mixture. For perfect depravity of sentiment is not reconcilable with eloquence. And the mind, though corruptible, not complexionally vicious, would reject and throw off with disgust a lesson of pure and unmixed evil. These writers make even virtue a pander to vice. So in his, in his assessment of Rousseau, it's the mixture that makes him especially pernicious. And that's what would make him persuasive as well. It's like, oh, did you see yeah, I mean, uh, this, this is obviously right.
0: There's enough virtue to lure you in. And so then even virtue is has become a tool of vice. Well, I'll close off with a final quote. He turns to terror, the kind of state terror of the French Revolution. And it's a powerful, it's a very powerful line. And I think it captures what I think is probably the threefold character of a revolution, which is this a sexual revolution. A class revolution, and then ultimately a religious revolution, because the French Revolution was, at the end of the day, a revolution against Christianity. You see how they desecrated churches, renamed the calendar, etc. And here's what Burke Burke says: Why, why, why? A revolution is necessarily religious. Your despots govern by terror. They know that he who fears God fears nothing else. And therefore, they eradicate from the mind, through their Voltaire, their Helvetius, and the rest of that infamous gang, that only sort of fear which generates true courage. Well, thanks for joining us on New Humanists. Uh, Pleasure as always. We will talk to you again soon.